TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. HBR presents... Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Me here. And I'm Felix. How are you guys doing? Doing okay. Woo. Uh, <laughs> feeling a little locked in at times. But other than that, it's all right. I keep trying to convince myself that we're halfway there. Oh, really? You think halfway? Well, I don't know. Halfway's always been this important idea in my mind. Like every time I reach a halfway juncture, it feels better. But I'm just not sure whether we're anywhere close to halfway. If we are, that would make me feel better. So it's based in no... No evidence whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was one of those weeks where the three of us all came in wanting to talk about the same thing, which almost never happens. Never really. <laughs> so the first is we all wanted to talk about Apple and Google and their announcement that they're collaborating to help facilitate technology behind contact mm-hmm. tracing. Mm-hmm. And then I think to all of our surprise, we all came in wanting to talk about the Fed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's really been like a very unprecedented set of actions. And I think we all felt like much of what we read about it was kind of unhelpful. <laughs> and so there's this large mysterious player and we really want to get into what it really means that they're doing what they're doing and what the heck they are doing. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, so we are now at the point where there is a lot of conversation about how we might reopen the economy. And whether we can do that safely depends on our ability to contain the spread of the virus. And the two primary anchors of any containment strategy are, number one, testing, and number two, what's being called contact tracing. So contact tracing refers to the fact that once someone tests positive for the virus, you have to figure out who that person has been in contact with over the past couple of weeks, and you've got to get all of those other people to take safety measures as well. Now, without technology, contact tracing can be really laborious and rather imperfect because it involves interviewing people and then physically tracking everyone down. But of course, what's fascinating about the current situation is that we are already in a place where every single one of us has a built-in tracker Mm -hmm. that's embedded in our mobile phones. And to give you a sense of what this can look like, South Korea is a really interesting country to look at because it's being held up as a model example in terms of containing the virus. So in South Korea, if you test positive, 
officials have license to immediately access your cell phone data, your GPS data, your Bluetooth data, your credit card data, your travel records, and so on, to comprehensively trace your whereabouts over the past couple of weeks. And then they use mobile phone notifications to automatically notify anyone who's been in contact with you. One consequence of this is that even though Korea has some of the densest cities in the world, they've not only been able to contain the virus, they haven't had to do the kind of dramatic lockdowns you've seen elsewhere. There have been some partial shutdowns, but more economic activity than we've seen in this country, for example. So the question is, how should we do contact tracing in the U.S.? Just last week, Apple and Google, the two companies that control pretty much every single mobile phone on Earth, made the announcement that they were going to work together to design a way to make it easy for third parties to build contact tracing apps that work across Apple and Android devices. So these apps would use Bluetooth to register when you come in close contact with another phone, and the app would keep an encrypted log of all of these encounters. So the companies insist everything about this is going to be A, voluntary, and B, coded in a way that doesn't reveal your names. But still, it is a very strange and slippery slope we are now going down. So guys, what is your reaction to the Apple and Google announcement? So first, I confess I was really excited by it because it struck me as a really nice modification of what has been going on in some parts of Asia. So roughly, I think about this in three ways, which is I think there's a government-centered way to do this with location-specific data, like using GPS data, like you outlined. And what Apple and Google promises is something that is actually not disclosing location-based data, but using Bluetooth is anonymized. There's no central warehouse of all the data. And effectively, the government is only accessing it via these Bluetooth links. So at first, I was very excited about it. But it made me wonder after a little while, not just about the privacy, but I'm not entirely sure that the old system, and I know it'll surprise neither of you that I like the low-tech solution here, <laughs> but I'm not sure it dominates what is the human-based, labor-intensive regime. So there's these three ways of doing it, I think. There's like a government-centric, location-based, a little bit heavy-handed version. There's the Apple, Google, Bluetooth, kind of much more privacy-centric, and then there's the government's going to hire thousands of people to contact trace and interview people. And I'm really worried that even in the Bluetooth case, there's false positives, there's false negatives for many reasons. So Bluetooth is not that precise. It can be through an apartment wall. Like if the person next door to me mm -hmm. is exposed, but I'm never exposed to them, Bluetooth can mm -hmm. conceivably say that I've been exposed. So that would be a false positive. There are false negatives. While in fact, the low-tech solution is actually quite promising and I think is actually best situated. So I guess I was initially really captivated by this, but I've come around to thinking that maybe this is a low-tech solution that we need. And maybe we want to do that in the way that we've always done it, which is human interviews. So I had a positive reaction also when I first heard about it. I think South Korea has really gone very far in making it almost impossible to be private if you have contracted COVID-19. And so relative to South Korea, I think the idea to use Bluetooth as the main technology to trace people, I think is exactly right. For reasons of, for reasons of privacy, I think that's a big advance. Uh, to your concern, Mihir, I would say 
a people's memory is far from perfect. Mm. And often you will get answers, oh, I was shopping at Whole Foods on a Wednesday morning. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to do a survey of everyone living in that neighborhood? Mm -hmm. So I think with physical interviews, they're very location-based. And as a result, you have big spillovers. Can you imagine we learned that there was someone who was positive at a restaurant? That restaurant will take in a huge hit, maybe for no reason at all, because it was someone who was there and then typically doesn't go back or self-quarantine. So I think one of the really big decisions we need to think about is, is it better to do it location-based or is it better to do persons-based? And unless you convince me, I think my sense for the time being, at least, is that person-based is much more powerful than location-based. We should say that it is remarkable if a few months ago, these two companies announced they were going to collude with each other to develop some kind of global surveillance technology, the world would have flipped out. <laughs> this is how much our world has changed. Yeah. I personally think we need to tread very, very carefully here. Mm -hmm. I think the risk is in thinking that just because it works in places like Korea, we can do our version of this that provides additional protections. Oh, we're going to use Bluetooth. We're not going to use geotracking. Oh, we're going to encrypt. And then to assume it's going to work as well here. I am not convinced this is going to work here. I think our version is going to be so porous as to be ineffective. Right. And I think we need to recognize that there is a real trade-off between something that works really effectively and something that requires more invasiveness with respect to privacy. So, for example, do you make this thing voluntary or mandatory? The most obvious way in which this can be immediately porous, immediately ineffective, is if we made it voluntary and only a subset of the people used it. So would you make it voluntary or would you make it mandatory? Well, I think there's two layers to this. Do you make it mandatory and then do you make it mandatory to use a particular app? If I understand right. the current plan correctly, we will have five dozen apps then, of course, making it mandatory and having five different apps that are not going to exchange data across. Like, what's the idea of having multiple apps? Mm -hmm. The reason why Korea works is because it's mandatory. And also, I think what people forget, if you don't self-isolate after you find out that you have contracted the virus... All of this is completely useless. Mm -hmm. The reason why Korea works is you have this one government app that actually makes sure once you test a positive, you will stay at home. And that's the reason why it works. And if we want tracing to be effective, that's what we would have to do. But so what's your preferred solution? Is it a very government-based, mandatory GPS-based system where everybody is giving their data all the time? There's only three options in my mind. I see a world where there's government-based, GPS, location-based, mandatory systems. We have a private Apple-Google solution, Bluetooth-based, no centralization, and private actors trying to mediate this with public health agencies. Or we do contact tracing in the very labor-intensive way. So if you don't like Apple-Google private, where do you go? I mean, Apple and Google have to do the work that they're doing to enable their operating systems for an app to be built on top of their operating system. Hmm. It's not that the government can do this because they control the operating systems of the phones. They have to enable us to have an app. Having competition between different app developers makes no sense whatsoever. The network effects in this particular case are so enormous. We want one app. 
And I think in practice, what this is going to mean, it's not the government is not going to build it, but the government will pay for it. And they will choose a vendor that builds this app. And it's mandatory? And it's mandatory. Yes, absolutely. So I cannot imagine an America where we do this on a mandatory basis. Right. I cannot imagine it. You see this in Europe right now. There's a yeah. huge debate in Germany and France. There is so much pushback against the imposition of apps like this. Yeah. Not only do I not think we can make it mandatory, I don't think we could enforce it being mandatory. If you wanted to go someplace and you didn't want to be tracked, you just turn your phone off. You just leave your phone behind. You opt out of the system. And so yeah. I just don't see a world in which that happens. And by the way, are we really going to trust these companies what assurances do we have that the information is not going to be monetized by advertise by health insurance companies, potential employers? Potential employers are going to want to see where you have been yeah. before they even hire you. So come to my world, young me. Come to my world. I see interviews and the human-based approach as being central to this for all kinds of reasons associated with the way people disclose information, the way they share information, and the way you want to get people to do this action, which is self-quarantine, once you give them that information. I think the worst case outcome is a mandatory system, which is location-based, which is enormous deprivations of privacy. And I think the middle ground, which is a Bluetooth-based system that's opt-in, is neither fish nor fowl. And I'm not sure it provides us with very much in either direction and ends up kind of being a low equilibrium as well. Ultimately, this is a question of how many dead people a day do you expect? So depending on the size of the subsequent waves, my sense is we might be more draconic or we might be more lenient. One version that I am completely comfortable with is we're not using GPS data. We're only using Bluetooth. I'm comfortable with a single app that is pre-installed on phones. I think we know that if we put something on people's phones, and if you feel really, really strongly you can delete it, that the vast majority of people will not do that. And in particular, I think in a pandemic where social considerations loom larger than they usually do, I have confidence that not everybody, of course, there's always people who feel super, super strong about not having any kind of technology following them. But I think a good number of people will actually live with that system. What's interesting about both of your preferred solutions is that you both acknowledge that they're imperfect, right? I mean, the Bluetooth thing is, it's not perfect because not everybody will comply. Doing person-to-person -person interviews is really imperfect. And to me, what that speaks to is that this can't be the front line of our defense. Right. This is one piece of the infrastructure we have to put in place. And this is why I worry a little bit about all the hype around these apps because until we have widespread testing, until we have quick testing, until we have temperature checks, and until we get to the point where we are stable, so now we're just managing small outbreaks here and there, then I think we can put into place a system that doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be pretty good so that we can quickly snuff out any kind of mm -hmm. reemergence of an outbreak. But I think to do something more comprehensive than that, makes me very, very nervous. And I actually don't even think is doable, given American culture. I think that's interesting, mm -hmm. which is in a rapid test world, in a very quick testing world, 
the importance or the reliance on the second leg, young me, that you started us on, which is the contact tracing world, is a little bit less. And maybe we can get there. And I think all of these solutions are going to be patchwork, right? I think there's going to be interviews. I think there's going to be an app. Mm -hmm. There's going to be all kinds of things. And we're going to kind of muddle through with a whole bunch of these answers at the same yeah. time. We talked about this in an earlier episode. Uh, patient number 31 in South Korea was a person who was in touch with 1,400 people. Mm -hmm. And each of these 1,400 people was in touch with other people. So this just gives you a sense of just how big the challenges are to make sure that everyone can stay safe. It's also just interesting to think about the Korean experience and these other experiences as happening in the middle of a crisis and a first wave and what people's tolerance was for dealing with that, as opposed to what we're talking about now, which is a chronic long-running situation. Yeah. In steady state with a chronic situation where things are bad but not as extreme, I'm not sure we have the same willingness to do things. And certainly across countries, it's going to differ as well. I think for different people, different things matter. For some people, privacy matters. For some other people, it's a question of compliance. And it's not a question of privacy. Mm -hmm. Imagine the scenario where you have not seen your friends in a long time. And you are in a car. And you're driving up to that restaurant. And you're so excited because you're about to have dinner with friends. And you're parking your car. And right as you're about to walk in, your phone pings. And it says, we're sorry to inform you that you have come into contact with someone who has tested positive for the coronavirus. And so whatever you're doing, you should stop what you're doing, go self-isolate, go get a test or whatever. And then the question becomes, yeah. what will people do when they get an alert like that? Yeah, yeah. There are some people, and this has nothing to do with privacy, who will just say, come on. Yeah. And they will just get out of the car and walk into the restaurant. There are other people who might not walk into the restaurant, but the idea of then taking a day off of work the next day and going and getting a test, that's completely a hassle and they won't do it. Are they going to self-isolate now for two weeks? That's not clear to me either. So, mm. I mean, part of it is privacy, but there are a whole host of considerations. That's why I think we have to be realistic about any kind of non-mandatory system we put in place realistic about how porous that system is likely to be. And the complementarities, right? In a world without paid sick leave, it's very hard to imagine that that can work. Well, I mean, the good news about this topic is we're going to be revisiting it because this is not going away anytime soon. And we'll actually be able to see how this shakes out in several months and maybe even in several years. So the sexy topic of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> so I can see both of your eyes light up. This is like almost as good as tax policy. <laughs> Not quite, but close. <laughs> so since this crisis began, the Fed has been pumping unprecedented levels of economic aid into the system. And when I say unprecedented, we're talking multi-trillion dollar levels of support. So beyond lowering interest rates, what has it done? Well, number one, it has created 11 mm -hmm. new emergency lending facilities to enable it to purchase a range of both corporate and government debt, including half a trillion dollars in state and municipal bonds. Mm -hmm. It's also engaged in quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. It's purchased massive amounts of securities, treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities, while signaling that there is essentially no limit to how far it's willing to go. So my first question to both of you is, what grade would you give the Fed's performance thus far? So, look, I think the speed with which they have reacted gets an A+. 
I think the substance of the different programs is a little bit more mixed and we can get into the details, but I think that's more of a B. But kudos for the creativity, kudos for the speed. And then when we get into the details, unfortunately, some of it's a little more problematic. What do you think, Felix? So I agree on the speed. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. Did they get everything exactly right? I would agree with me here. Yes, there's you know, interesting conversations to be had about should you really purchase risky assets and how risky assets. So there's interesting policy questions, but I agree with you. Overall, in particular compared to Congress, I love what they have done. It sounds like all three of us agree here. It is the one federal agency that has really stood out for its decisiveness, its willingness to act quickly and aggressively. But having said that, there is still a lot to debate in the details of what it's done. My first question is, do you think the Fed has struck the right balance in supporting and propping up big companies versus small companies here? So for the larger companies, they have embarked on a process of direct lending and of buying corporate debt that's outstanding. And that is useful and kind of falls within the domain of kind of providing actual credit through the Fed. They've also provided liquidity, which is all that quantitative easing is really fundamentally about providing liquidity and trying to stabilize prices. And in that frame, what we're really trying to do is lend to big companies at reasonable rates and make sure that they get through this time period. The problem is they're kind of adopting that same frame with small business. And I think the thing I've struggled with with the Fed is there are things like the Paycheck Protection Program, which is partly involving the Fed, but is mainly the Treasury. I think it's a useful way to help small businesses, which is effectively we're giving them money and we don't expect it back. With the other kind of Fed programs for small business, like this Main Street facility, which is like a brilliant marketing title, um, <laughs> they've adopted kind of a lending frame. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem, which is I think they should have probably adopted a give money frame. I would have much preferred to see them take the frame of we're giving small and medium enterprises money because we need to give them money. And instead, we're going to have a loan program for them. And it's going to get underutilized. It's going to be focused on getting paid back as opposed to getting focused on get money to small and medium enterprises. I agree with your second point, Mir. Really important. That lending frame to small businesses practically means that we're forcing banks to hold 5% of the loans on their balance sheet. Now you might say, well, 5% is not that much. Right. But by forcing the banks to hold 5%, you have a second layer of diligence. So all the covenants that banks typically have for corporate loans, they will apply some version of it to these loans also. And that, I think, is where speed has just completely, you know, the program has just not performed well because that's now complicated and it's not clear what are the treasury requirements, what are the requirements of the banks. And so lots of smaller businesses in particular, yeah. it's been just way, way, way too slow. Well, but this is where the unprecedented nature of this stuff comes in. If you're doing something for the first time, the likelihood that you're going to have an infrastructure in place with which you can do it efficiently is going to be very small. So even in the case where you're just giving money away, which is essentially what the PPP program is designed to do, right. it still operates through banks. And so even in that situation, the smaller the company you are, the more cumbersome that process is for you, the less likely it is that you're going to have a pre-existing relationship with the bank and that the bank is going to feel comfortable processing that thing quickly. And so what you saw in the disbursement of those funds, it really favored the larger small companies as opposed to the small, small companies. And so the concept behind it seemed to be about right 
and the execution got very, very messy. Yeah, we should probably also mention the one really fabulous thing about the CARES Act is that it's extended and made more generous unemployment benefits that people can draw on. So there's lots and lots of benefits to really make corporate lending work. But to the extent that we're not doing it perfectly and that we're slow and that we're not getting things off the ground as quickly as we should, we do have that additional protection that comes in the form of now extended and more generous unemployment benefits. And from a systems perspective, that's actually really important. I think that will serve America really well, Mm -hmm. that we've done both of these things at the same time. So another example of the unprecedented nature of the Fed's activities is the extent to which it has signaled it is willing to prop up local and municipal governments. During the 2008 crisis, the Fed argued that this was the job of Congress, and it has apparently changed its mind about this. What do you guys think about that? It wasn't that long ago that the Fed argued that that wasn't the role of the Fed. What a difference politics makes. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> so this was the early days of the Obama administration. Congress was dominated by Democrats. And they could actually make up their mind and say, yes, it's worthwhile supporting states. It's worthwhile supporting cities. And as a result, that was kept in Congress's responsibility. Now we have a divided Congress. And so we're basically deadlocked. Who can act? the Fed can act. And so we see this change now, this moving over responsibility to the Federal Reserve as a result of here's an agency that actually has its act together and can do something. I I think that's exactly right. And in a way, it's the most ambitious and innovative piece of what they're doing. But I think it's also maybe the craziest. You know, first off, it's restricted to larger municipalities and states. It's direct lending. And it is now really a piece of our federalism structure. And that is very new. And that's a huge departure, which is the way we usually think about this is we get states money with block grants or we get states money with tax exempt bonds. Now we have direct lending. And what you really have to worry about is down the road, well, how hard do you press on these states and municipalities to pay back? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I take your point, Felix, which is the political exigencies made them want to do it fast. And the municipal bond market, by the way, fell out of bed and they had to get something to get it back in bed. But God, this feels like a singular change. And it's kind of giving Congress even more reason to abdicate its duty of Mm -hmm. figuring out what a federal structure should look like. So that's the piece that I actually am most worried about. But I think that same conversation will end up in a different place because of the unprecedented circumstances that we're in. So I completely agree with you, Mihir. This is not what we want to do longer term. It cannot be the long-term role of the Fed to bail out cities that live beyond their means, that are fiscally irresponsible. But it's a situation that makes this different. Yeah. But I think this is the larger critique I guess I have of this, which is overall, what are we doing? We hallmarked $450, $500 billion so we can Mm -hmm. create these weird, unique programs. But in a way, I kind of step back and I say to myself, we should have decided we wanted to lose some money and we should have given that money to the people who need it. (laughs) And instead, what we're doing is we're creating a bunch of cute programs through leverage at the Fed. And I don't know where we end up with. And I think I might have preferred more things like the Paycheck Protection Program where we say, we're giving money. That's it. Period. End of sentence. So even the Paycheck Protection Program a lot of the constraints they put around that program were political in nature because it would not have been acceptable otherwise. And so the trade-off is you can just give money away indiscriminately and that seems really quick and it's frictionless and you know you're going to lose it anyway. 
But the pushback there is that, oh, my gosh, look, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse is getting, you know, this big PPP (laughs) program. And meanwhile, you know, my corner restaurant down the street couldn't even get the application in on time because they couldn't find an attorney that could help them do it, you know? And so that's the trade-off. So when they look back to the Great Recession and these individual stimulus checks, they literally looked how well they did, whether the checks went to the right people. And they found that in 99.6% of all cases, they got it exactly right, which is really, when you think about it, that's like amazing. And that took months. You might remember, right? It was like months and months before these checks came. Now they wanted to be fast. And I love the fact that they're fast. But what was the title page on my newspaper this morning? There was a person who died last year who received a check from the IRS. Mm. And that, I think, is the tragedy. Like In a way, it reinforces that government cannot do things quite right when in fact they learn something very important yes you can do a perfect job but that takes time but now they're getting whacked again because of course you know they're not doing it exactly right yeah look i can't let you go before asking this final question which is it is pretty clear that congress is going to have to come up with additional rescue programs on top of the two plus trillion already committed Meanwhile, the Fed has signaled a willingness to enable this. Mm -hmm. So we are in this strange moment when the church and state separation of fiscal and monetary authority seems to have dissolved. (laughs) And there seems to be this implicit agreement that we are committed to spend whatever it takes. And I know we're back to sort of modern monetary theory (laughs) world here, but at what point should we start to worry? So this is definitely not the time to worry. And and it's just because if the returns on a particular program are so far larger than the cost, the interest costs, of course you're going to do it because you can pay back the debt from the returns to these programs. If you look at real interest rates at this point in time, they're slightly negative. And so anything we do right now easily, easily, easily passes that test. And then when we talk about other kinds of programs where the returns are much lower, we will have to think about, you know, what's our ability to pay back? I think the consensus, my view is, has probably shifted that levels of debt that would have been called very problematic are now seen as more acceptable as a result of having had a very long period without any sort of sign of inflation. So that changes that calculus a little bit. But of course, the basic fact that you will have to pay back uh, the debt at some point in time, that's still true. I think all that's exactly right, that now is not the time for that concern. I think the tricky part about this, of course, is that we did that in 2008. And we tremendously expanded the Federal Reserve balance sheet from less than a trillion to four or five trillion. And then we were never able to shrink it back down. So things that seem temporary have a way of transitioning into something that's more permanent. And so absolutely right, now is not the right time. But what I would worry about is it is hard to find the right time (laughs) to kind of provide that correction mechanism. And we will need to find that time. And the last time we had an opportunity to do that, we didn't. And so that's the real question about how we rein this in and how we step back, having stepped in. Because stepping in is right, but one also has to step back. Okay, recommendations. Who's got a good pick for me? Here, I can see you smiling. Well, you know, at this time, I have started to do something that I never really have done before, which is rewatch things that I've watched before. 
And I wanted to recommend, uh, unsurprisingly, a British cop show that I'm revisiting, <laughs> which is fantastic, but it's unique. It stars Kenneth Branagh, and it's called Wallander, and it's four seasons long. And the beauty of the show is it takes place in Sweden, but all the actors are British, and they all speak English. So it's this weird mixed up world where everyone speaks English, but the posters you see on the road are Swedish and it takes place in Sweden. Yeah. And the overarching drama of this guy, Wallander, who's the detective, as he gets older, is so gripping and so touching. And by the end, you know, without giving anything away, he has medical problems. And it, the loss you feel of this character who you've gotten to know is so profound. It's just great. And it's Kenneth Branagh's best acting, I think. So Wallander, available on Amazon, as well as other places as well. Really, really fantastic. I have very fond memories of Wallander. I don't typically rewatch, but <laughs> if I had to rewatch a show, I think that would be somewhere at the top of my list. So it is interesting how the shutdown has made you kind of click on things in your streaming app that you normally wouldn't do. A while ago, Mihir, you recommended Better Call Saul. Yes. And that is something mm. I would never ordinarily click on. So I clicked on it. It was so boring. No. Oh my God. It's so was, good. And it's in the it final season. So oh and God. it is so good. And then oh. I said to someone, Oh, I tried watching this and it is so boring. And they said, Well, season five is amazing. Every said, season. Season five. Every season. It is the best thing on five. TV today. It is fantastic. I'm standing by Better Call Saul. Beautiful. When does it get good? I don't get it. When does it get good? I can't even talk. Oh, God. The two of you, you're just too much. So my actual recommendation is not Better Call Saul. Boring. <laughs> but rather, I'm going to recommend Khan Academy. And the reason I'm going to recommend Khan Academy is there are so many parents at home mm. trying to figure out how to homeschool their kids. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was trying to figure out how to homeschool her eighth grader in math. Mm -hmm. And I found myself telling her, oh, you should just have him use Khan Academy. Because I remember when my kids were about that age, it was amazing. So if you are familiar with Khan Academy, it's founded by a guy named Sal Khan, HBS alum, who used to work as a financial analyst. And on the side, he began tutoring his younger cousin in math. And he developed a family reputation for it. So other family members started asking him to tutor their kids as well. And so he started putting his tutorials on YouTube. And now mm -hmm. his videos have been downloaded more than a billion times. Mm -hmm. He's a master, master teacher. And if you go to his website now, what you'll find is entire curricula for different grades, starting kindergarten all the way through to professional schools. So if you are looking for a way to homeschool your kids in any subject imaginable, I would highly, highly recommend Khan Academy. So I've looked at a lot of different things on Khan Academy, mainly math, but it is really good. And in particular, what he does really well is he knows how to use the medium, right? So he knows how to use video and he knows how to use drawings. And it is so good. And his voice is very good. And the way he talks is very good. Yes. And he uses the medium and the video and the screen in like a really, really brilliant way. So yeah, it's fantastic. He's truly gifted. Yeah. Felix, what do you have? 
you might remember that I recommended music discovery sites before. So we're sitting uh-oh, at home. Uh-oh. We have a lot of time. And I hope the two of you oh and everyone else. Here, what country? Do I you think, think I'm guessing Argentinian polka, <laughs> some combination. Actually, not far off. Very good. Excellent. So, <laughs> so far, I recommended sites for jazz and classic music and rap and rock. But I've never really made a recommendation for what some people called world music. And there's this British website called Songlines, which has an amazing collection of music and recommendations. Really fantastic. Oddly, when you look at the countries, they seem to be particularly strong everywhere where the British Empire existed, (laughs) which gives you like a really weird map of music. But where like the artists that they pick and how they describe the music. So you might discover you really love Tuareg guitar. Who knew? And song who knew (laughs) (laughs) and and song lines is to decide to find out whether that's actually your thing or not fantastic highly recommendable highly enjoyable time will fly felix do you dance when you listen to this stuff (laughs) depends on what the music is some of the african music is like so amazingly danceable you can't not dance it's hard yes felix you need to start a tiktok (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) i have noticed that the benchmark for dancing on tiktok is really low that was young me's backhanded compliment i think felix yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay that's it for this week everyone thanks everyone for listening This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.